Welcome to Simply PM&R, a Mayo Clinic Talks production. The simple solution for PM&R healthcare professionals who want to keep up while on the go. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Bro, physiatrist in PM&R at Mayo Clinic. Back pain. If you're a physician practicing, you've seen back pain. We as physiatrists are expected to be the experts in treating this condition. Sometimes even thought that we can fix this condition. Today, we're joined by Dr. Randy Shellerud, a colleague at Mayo Clinic and former director of the Spine Center at Mayo Clinic. He's here to give us all the answers on back pain. Welcome, Randy. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. So what is the incidence of low back pain in the U.S. now? So, yes, this is a common issue. Probably 70 to 80 percent of all adults at some point in their life are going to have significant back pain. So what are the current recommendations for the initial assessment and treatment of acute low back pain? Right. So we see these patients a lot in our office, and clearly the first item to tick off of your list is to make sure that you're not missing some serious underlying reason for that pain. We all know that's very rare, but it's important to be diligent in each and every patient in doing that. And that, of course, involves uh, your history and going through an examination that includes a neurologic assessment. So what kind of conditions are you worried about missing? So the big ones are something growing in the spine to account for the pain other than you know, just the usual mechanical and muscular and joint problems such as tumors, cancer, infection, fracture, and then these rare uh, neurologic syndromes that would bring a patient to surgery emergently, such as cardioequina syndrome. So do you always get an x-ray when you see someone with back pain? Yeah, good point. So we know enough about back pain now to say that in most cases, even if the patient presents with 9 or 10 out of 10 severe pain, that this pain is going to get a lot better very soon. And most patients see rather significant improvement in their disability and pain within a few days to a few weeks. So we really don't start looking for these problems unless there's something unusual about their story or their exam, or they've gone past the usual four to six weeks uh, and they don't see improvement. That's the person who needs an x-ray. When do you consider sending these folks to physical therapy? So it, it's kind of a negotiation, at least the way I do uh, make those decisions in my practice. It's a negotiation with the patient, meaning uh, once they understand what they're batting against and maybe have gotten some reassurance about, despite how severe the pain can be, that this is a benign condition, Many of them just resort to saying, you know what, as long as I know that, I'm just going to start to move on my own and keep going. You said it's safe for me to move, um, and uh, I'll rest when I need to for short periods of time, and, and I'm okay with that. I don't need any formal treatment. Uh, but other patients uh, really aren't moving very well and would prefer to have maybe some modalities uh, put on their back by a therapist. Um, and then obviously there's some education about how to rehabilitate your spine that everyone I think who's had a back pain episode would benefit from and and this can be done either by some handouts that you give them or with a physical therapist uh, to train them. So what I hear you saying is we no longer tell people to to rest, to, to be in bed 
for, for a few days. What's our recommendations regarding activity with acute low back pain? Right. Uh, that's an important point. And despite this being 2019, that still isn't something that is just out there as general knowledge. Patients often are inclined to interpret their pain as being serious and therefore crawl in bed to kind of wait for it to go away. And uh, But I think providers more and more are really understanding that it's clear that your recovery is quicker if you try to keep active and you avoid these secondary problems that bed rest uh, ends up providing. We all know these, they get uh, deconditioning and stiffness and, and uh, uh, joint soreness and all those things that you just can avoid if you're continuing to move. You know, as someone who suffers from back pain myself, I've had a few acute episodes and it was even hard to breathe. Is there ever a role for narcotic medication with axial low back pain? Well, um, I think there is. Uh, obviously, all the guidelines uh, would uh, strongly suggest that you steer away from those and maybe focus more on non-pharmacological treatments if possible, and then use the non-opioid medications first. But I agree with you. Uh, this pain can be 9 or 10 out of 10 legitimately because of the muscle spasm that's often involved. And uh, to have a short course of opioids available for breakthrough pain, I think, is reasonable as long as, again, it's a short course and the patient uh, kind of fully understands that these are kind of for emergency purposes only. Well, you said muscle spasms. That's what causes the vast majority of the pain. Why not just put somebody on muscle relaxers? Uh, we can, and we certainly do. Those are popular. Uh, I work with many primary care physicians who treat their back pain patients, and uh, pri uh, muscle relaxers are used every day still for back patients. I guess in my experience, uh, they're a little bit hit and miss in how well they perform, and more reliably, they sedate patients to the point that they are not um, tolerating them during the day. And so oftentimes the compromise is that if you're going to use muscle relaxers, they're uh, they're relegating them to nighttime use to help with sleep. So, you know, it's it's like any other medication. Uh, it's a trial and error thing because uh, patients vary widely in how much they work for them individually. You know, when you're seeing someone with axial low back pain, whether it be acute or subacute, when do you consider kind of looking at the next step, getting a CT or MRI or advanced imaging? What's your thought process on when to order those tests? Yeah, good question. So, uh, yeah, we will certainly reach out and spend a little bit of money on advanced imaging uh, in several scenarios. The first, of course, is that patient who has some radicular uh, features. So they don't just have a back pains per se, but they've got the leg component that, that sounds like it may be a, a root irritation problem. And in those circumstances, um, if they are not improving with conservative care and you're looking at uh, an epidural injection, for instance, or talking to a surgeon, you certainly want to know and confirm what the pathology is uh, back there to, uh, to guide your treatment. Now, you know, when we have patients who have radiculopathy, obviously 98% um, of the time, if you've got someone with a fairly classic L5 radiculopathy, for instance, this is going to be a disc problem particularly in the usual age groups where this happens, so the average age at um, time of surgery for a discogenic radicular syndrome is 40, and uh, the bell curve is fairly steep on either side of that. So if they're, you know, a 20- to 50-year-old person, 
with radicular symptoms. Uh, I don't necessarily get an MRI scan to confirm it's a disc problem because it almost always is. Of course, the scenario there is, or the caveat would be, do they have any red flag issues that would suggest that maybe there's something other than a disc to worry about? You know, do they have constitutional symptoms? Do they have a history of cancer? Did they actually fall and injure themselves? That's why um, they're hurting in this nature. Um, is there something funny about the distribution of the symptoms that suggests maybe it's not a straightforward single root radicular problem or some other neuropathic problem? You really wanted to find the anatomy in those circumstances. When do you think about ordering a blood test? Uh, the most common scenario that I um, are involved in ordering blood tests are those patients where the suspicion is for an inflammatory arthropathy. And those patients are often folks who don't look like your garden variety, beltline, low back complaint patient. They have symptoms more uh, localized to the buttock. And the more classic story is they may have alternating symptoms in one buttock or the other, um, and they may be particularly tender down below the PSIS level. Whereas, as we know, most back pain patients, when you palpate their spine, the majority of the tenderness is going to be lumbosacral level at or above the PSIS. Today's episode was sponsored by Mayo Clinic Online CME, offering on-demand medical education and a wide variety of specialties. This includes the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Online Board Review course. Enter your boards with confidence, whether it's your first time through or for recertification. Learn on your own time and earn credit. Register today at ce.mayo.edu slash online. When do you think about an EMG? Well, you know, I guess my thinking there has evolved over the years. I've ordered EMGs uh, quite liberally, I think, when I first practiced and uh, um, in patients with limb symptoms. Um, nowadays, uh, if the history, the examination really all point towards the same thing, the patient has root tension signs as well, and you, you think this is an L5 or an S1 radiculopathy, um, I'm not going to order the EMG. And I Nowadays, it's it's really those more befuddling presentations when there's some could-be nerve, quote-unquote, types of symptoms going on, but you're not sure. Is, is it a single-root problem? Is it a multi-root problem? Is it a plexopathy? Uh, am I missing something else? And that, those are the times when I'll get the EMG. Do surgeons require an EMG before taking a look at patients considering surgical intervention? Um, I, I guess in my experience, I think surgeons uh, uh, play it pretty much the way I do um, in terms of making the decision. Uh, some, maybe earlier in their practice, or if the symptoms are not as straightforward, will want or demand an EMG, um, which I think is reasonable. But uh, uh, for the most part, again, if it's a fairly straightforward situation and the MRI has corroborative pathology on it, uh, we're not getting EMGs in those scenarios. So when does low back pain become a chronic condition? Yeah, I like this question. Um, I've got a couple of answers. Uh, of course, for research purposes, uh, we kind of define chronicity as 12 weeks or more. Subacute is 6 to 12 weeks, but that doesn't really help us in practice too much. 
But the point I like to make with patients and providers here is we should be looking at back pain as a chronic disease right from the get-go. Um, it fits better with a chronic disease model, even if you're seeing that patient with their first ever episode of back pain. And the reason is that when you follow patients over time, this is a recurrent problem in the vast majority of t cases. So recurrence in 12 months is somewhere in the 60 to 80 percent range. And when you look at groups of patients who've had their first flare-up and you were to call them every day, it's a beautiful study done a couple of years ago where they actually reached out to patients for a year on a daily basis after their first episode of back pain, and you found that there's a pretty distinct pattern. About 50% of them became pain-free, um, and 50% of them didn't. So again, kind of a chronicity issue. Even though this was their first episode of pain, they, um, about half of them never shook back pain over that year. And the ones who became pain-free did so by about 10 weeks. So that's now what I'm telling my patients. Uh, you got about a 50-50 chance that you're going to shake this pain completely, and if you do, it's going to be over the first 10 weeks of symptoms, and if you don't, you, you should expect to continue to have pain, albeit probably at a level where the disability is, is not high and you could probably be expecting to get back to your usual activities. So are there any treatments you would prescribe for a patient like that that had their first episode, they're getting better? Is there any preventative things they can do? Uh, yes, good point. There was a, an eloquent study by Bigos and colleagues where they looked at only high-quality studies um, of patients who had acute low back pain and then followed it with rehabilitation, mainly uh, core strengthening and general fitness principles. And they found that patients who were compliant with those exercise programs were much less likely to recur um, than patients who simply just rested and took some medications, used a heating pad, and then went on with their life once the uh, symptoms resolved. So it's actually a fairly strong argument that general and back-specific conditioning has a significant preventative role. Um, so I, that's one of the reasons I really encourage my patients to see a physical therapist and get going once they feel up to it. So is there a role for injections with chronic, chronic axial low back pain? Well, there are, and uh, you know I'm a bit biased, so you need to know the person talking here is someone who uses injections fairly liberally in, in his practice, and the reason I do that is that I'm trying to get them to the rehabilitation. I'm trying to improve their function overall, and if an injection knocks their pain down enough for them to really uh, fully commit energy to a rehabilitation program, I think they're worthwhile, even though you know they may or may not be a long-term uh, solution. You know, the other question is, do you use it diagnostically? Do you use an injection to help with your diagnosis? Um, I do, and uh, I, that may be the actually the more common reason why I order these. So we, as you know, having worked in the spine center yourself for many years, um, we see patients who have chronic symptoms often that are sometimes not just local but regional and there may be some rather atypical features, and you really are trying to ask the question of, well, can we identify a pain generator? Is it that beat-up-looking sacroiliac joint? Is this a hip problem instead of a spine problem? Is it the facet joints, and if so, at what levels? Is that PARS defect symptomatic? 
um, is that uh, screw that's loose in their hardware uh, and someone who's had a previous fusion playing a role in this focal pain in that region or not. And so these injections uh, can really be, I think, uh, quite helpful in our understanding of an individual's pain. So when do you refer someone for surgical intervention? So far and away in my practice, uh, there'd be the scenario where the patient has that radiculopathy, leg-dominant pain, and there uh, typically is going to be a disc on an MRI scan, and I've thrown all the conservative care at them I can, and uh, I'm not helping them. So that's the most common scenario would be the radiculopathy patient who's failed conservative treatment. Um, the other more rare scenarios we worry about and look for but thankfully don't see as often as that patient who does have a radicular problem um, or other uh, neurologic uh, spine issue and they're having progression of their weakness. You obviously want to stop that progression as quickly as possible and a surgical decompression may need, be needed. And then, of course, that, that uh, worrisome cardioquina syndrome patient who has an explosive onset of symptoms with the uh, sphincter dysfunction in addition to bilateral leg neuropathic changes. Now, Randy, you've obviously been doing this a while, and you're, in my mind, considered one of the world experts in back pain. If I was somebody just starting out in practice in physiatry, what are a couple of pearls you would give me in the treatment of patients with back pain? Well, good question. Um, I find in my practice, I spend the majority of my time talking to the patient and educating them. Um, there's so much nuance to spine care, whether it be the imaging results or things, and there's just so much confusion and misinformation out there. It, it's hard for patients to, to really pull this together in a meaningful way if they don't have a medical background. Um, and so I, I work hard at educating them on how to interpret the imaging, what this means for them uh, from a medical standpoint, and its, it's potential impacts on their quality of life. And I really try to listen to them as far as why are they here? Um, it's fascinating to me that patients have all kinds of um, preconceived assumptions about what's going on with their back, what needs to be done, how serious this is that they've come up with on their own that may many times be woefully, woefully inaccurate, and I want to make sure that I can address those kind of spine myths as, uh, as thoroughly as I can. We've been talking about back pain with Dr. Randy Shellerud, a colleague at Mayo Clinic and a physiatrist in the Spine Center. Thanks for your time, Randy. Thank you, Jeff. Are you a physiatrist preparing for your upcoming PM&R Part 2 oral boards? Do you need to brush up on your examination skills? Through a combination of didactic lecture, case vignettes, optional mock oral examinations, and online modules, the PM&R board review course can help guide your preparation. This vital course will be held on the historic Mayo Clinic campus in downtown Rochester, Minnesota, every spring, just prior to the American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation oral examinations. For complete course information and to receive an email when registration is open, visit ce.mayo.edu slash PMR. 